Kings have killed Mr. Garrison. Politics is power. Nothing more. Oh, don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. Do your own work, your own thinking. This is Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Today, we either jump timelines or just can't seem to escape the cult of Martha Marcy May Marlene, weigh in on this Oscar hosting gig, and offer you who we might consider Hollywood has-beens. But first, we're going to talk about J. Edgar, the newest film from director Clint Eastwood. Edgar, you will rise to be the most powerful man in the country. It is my belief that when a man becomes a part of this bureau, he must so conduct himself as to eliminate even the slightest possibility of criticism as to his conduct. Mr. Tolson, I need someone who I can trust. I want you to be my number two man. You understand? I need you. Imagine if every citizen in this country were uniquely identifiable by the pattern on their fingers. Imagine how quickly we could find them if they committed a crime. Do you remember that file we created on his wife? Mrs. Roosevelt. Will you make a copy for me, please? Is that legal? Sometimes you need to bend the rules a little in order to keep your country safe. It's the latest entry in Eastwood's stately old Hollywood style of filmmaking through which he's pretty reliably delivered about one film per year over the last decade or so. This has delivered some hits like Best Picture winner Million Dollar Baby, Best Picture nominees Mystic River and Letters from Iwo Jima, and popular moneymaker Gran Torino, and some misses like the turgid would-be awards contenders Flags of Our Fathers, Changeling, Invictus, and last year's Horrible Hereafter. Though Eastwood is still a filmmaker who commands great respect, of late it's been seeming like he's been off his game, with Invictus and Hereafter in particular feeling airless and haphazardly put together despite promising premises. Now he has returned with J. Edgar, which teams Eastwood with Leonardo DiCaprio for the first time. Now I think it's unquestionable at this point that DiCaprio is one of his generation's finest actors, and he has quite the role potentially here as J. Edgar Hoover, the mercurial director of the FBI, whose private life and penchant for paranoia has made him one of the most scrutinized public figures of the 20th century. J. Edgar speculates that Hoover's repressed and secretive lifestyle and his penchant for power-broking with presidents was all the result of his closeted sexuality, here embodied with his lifelong but chaste relationship with his constant companion and FBI co-worker Clyde Tolson, played by Army Hammer. So Ben J. Edgar does not want for ambition, filmmaking-wise. It spans decades of American history and includes dozens of public figures from the era. But then a lot of Eastwood's other stately misses have been ambitious films, too. So does this film snap Eastwood out of his filmmaking slump? Do you even think he's been in a slump at all? Or is this another well-intentioned misfire? I think it's a misfire. It's one of those stately misses. I think it does teeter between the hits and the misses. I think it's a fair film. The film looks great, sounds fine. The performances are pretty good all around, especially that of Leonardo DiCaprio's as Hoover. But I didn't really learn as much about Hoover as I sort of wanted to going into it. And honestly, I think that those who see this movie or want to see this movie are going to go into it familiar with the subject matter and an interest in J. Edgar Hoover going into it. This isn't a movie for all tastes, necessarily. If you're a U.S. history buff, it's probably a must. But again, the biggest fault in this movie lies with director Clint Eastwood and screenwriter 
Dustin Lance Black, whom I think each sort of deliver kind of a convoluted mess. And Eastwood's kind of given the greater challenge here in directing Lance Black's very difficult script. There's a point in the movie where J. Edgar Hoover is dictating to an FBI agent. He's dictating to several FBI agents throughout the movie his autobiography or the story of the FBI through his eyes. And at one point in the movie, one of the agents asks him, are you trying to tell the story of one man's legacy or are you trying to tell the story of an agency's reputation or vice versa? I can't remember. And he's struggling to decide which story he wants to tell. And I think that the writer and the director share the dilemma that they introduce in the film. But again, aside from the distracting makeup that we see throughout this entire movie, and it really is distracting, and that that was kind of a joke, a running joke from the public going into it after they saw the trailer, but it really is. It's, It's not very well done for the most part. The film just sort of is, and I I can't really say that it's one that I'm going to consider for anything towards the end of the film year, and that's not necessarily what we go into movies to do, but again, I think that this movie looks good and it has an interesting visual style, although, look, if you want to shoot it in a way that looks like black and white, you (laughs) might as well just shoot it in black and white. That's exactly what I said after the movie. But technically, you can't really say too many bad things about the movie, but story-wise, I just don't really feel like Eastwood or Black really knew which J. Edgar Hoover story they wanted to tell, and instead you get sort of the sprawling mess that touches upon many different aspects without any sort of clarity. I found it really unsatisfying, too. It feels, and I can't take credit for this description because I'm pretty sure that I read it somewhere on Twitter, but whoever this was hit the mark. It feels like a Wikipedia entry sort of narrated and read by actors on film. It's just one thing after another, one historical event with some context, but not a whole lot of context. And you said that this film might appeal more to history buffs, which is interesting to me because it seems like most of it has to be speculative. As guarded as J. Edgar Hoover was about his life, the idea that he was possibly homosexual or or had a relationship with Clyde Tolson or any of the so-called things in his personal files that the movie seems to depict, all of this is just guesswork. The relationship with his mother, you know, this is not available to the public record. So it's almost like historical fiction in a way that I'm not even sure would be satisfying to a history buff because of just how, I don't know, I, I mean, I can't speak for what this movie does get right because I'm not terribly familiar with Hoover besides previous portrayals of Hoover in film and television, like I'm thinking Bob Hoskins and Oliver Stone's Nixon, which doesn't portray him particularly flatteringly either. But it jumps back and forth between timelines, uh, between older Hoover in the late 60s, early 70s, and, and younger Hoover throughout the duration of his life far too often. And for you to get a handle on exactly who it is that you're watching and, and where it is and what the context of the period is. And this is supposed to, I suppose, add up to a sort of diluted, tragic, Charles Foster Kane-ish persona as we get this semi-reveal near the end that maybe what Hoover's been dictating hasn't been the most reliable. But that doesn't really feel satisfying to me either because it's not like Hoover was portraying himself as a decent dude or anything but, pardon the expression, kind of a dick. It is my belief that when a man becomes a part of this bureau, he must so conduct himself both officially and unofficially, as to eliminate even the slightest possibility of criticism as to his conduct. 
You still fancy facial hair, Agent Stokes? The ladies appreciate it. Mm. And I suppose the ladies' opinions are more important than the Bureau's? No. Sir. Perhaps you are better suited for the police force than the Bureau of Investigations. I've been with the Department of the Bureau for seven years, Edgar. Almost as long as you. No. You were with the old Bureau seven years, and that Bureau is now gone, sir. And so are you. Even in his supposed dictations, he still seems like a not a particularly good dude. And, and the reveal that he's even less of a good dude doesn't really do much for me. The movie itself just didn't really do much for me. Like you said, the performances are fine. DiCaprio is fine. But nothing really raised the pulse. I feel like DiCaprio has done far better. And I feel like the actors here were kind of abandoned by Eastwood and by his airless, stately storytelling. There's no, there's no pulse to it. it. It feels as dead as Army Hammer's old age makeup. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I saw the film with my dad, and he actually compared Army Hammer's Clyde Tolson makeup in the 60s and 70s to Dave in 2001 from 1968. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he looks like a mummy. <laughs> he really does. Yeah. But you, you mentioned the big reveal that this movie gives you at the end, and I feel like that's when the movie really shoots itself in the foot, even after it's just sort of been plodding along. And you said it's speculative, and sure, but these kinds of films, even the films of Oliver Stone, you mentioned Nixon and JFK, they take a stance. Yeah. And at, at some point in this movie, you sort of feel like this movie itself, too, is sort of taking a stance. We're seeing it from a very specific perspective here, that being J. Edgar Hoover's. But once you get this big reveal, it completely betrays that stance. Right. And it just becomes this confusing mixture of theories that just completely ends up falling on its face at that point. But again, like you said, performance is adequate. I mean, what is Naomi Watts really doing? In uh, this? She's, she she's, does nothing. Well, she's given sort of some depth early on in the film, but after that, she, she just turns into his yeah. secretary. Yeah, she disappears and she's a non-presence. Yeah, it's a thankless role and you have Army Hammer here obviously cast due to the success of the social network. And I think he, he does what he can, but Hammer's not really given a lot to do by writer Dustin Lance Black or Clint Eastwood here, and his scenes really sort of result in these melodramatic episodes. See, I disagree with you there because I feel like Army Hammer probably gave the best performance in the movie because those were the only scenes that the movie seemed to come alive. You know, it's not DiCaprio's fault that he's playing this stuffy, repressed guy, but two hours plus where the stuffy repressed guy isn't exactly the you know the best night at the movies and when when army hammer is actually on screen and seemingly pretty vibrant in their interactions together i i, I felt that those were the best scenes in the movie but yeah i don't think it's really any better than just you know okay other than it sort of shows to me that maybe our faith in army hammer as evidenced in the social network was was probably on target he he does seem to be a a pretty special talent i don't i don't know that i would say he outacted dicaprio necessarily if one can outact anybody but it's just when those are those are the scenes when i felt the movie actually was doing something instead of just being respectable but i do agree with you that eastwood never really seems to decide what he wants his movie to be about is it about a closeted homosexual? It seems to be about a closeted homosexual who kissed a dude once and decided he didn't like it and then spent the rest of his life doing nothing or just being married to the job, so to speak. And I guess it does sort of depict that mindset of being married to the job as possibly being, I don't know, coded language back in those times. But Hoover really is married to his job uh, and he takes it very seriously. It's just not compelling. 
It's just not at all. Well, where the movie might have been compelling is if it just picked one. If it picked one of these facets of Hoover's life and ran mm-hmm. with it, you could either establish and attack the personal or private life of J. Edgar Hoover, which many people are curious about, or you could stick with his professional life and how he launched the FBI and how he became the face of law enforcement there for so long and so much of the uh, 20th century. And if I had to pick between the two based on what Eastwood and Black are giving me, I'm going to pick his job. I'm going to pick mm-hmm. the professional life because I, I felt slightly compelled when you sort of introduced this subplot of the Lindbergh kidnapping, which is sort of a yeah. motif throughout the movie, the investigation that Hoover conducts there. And it's halfway interesting. And I just feel like they do a disservice to that subplot by going back and forth as much as they right. do. And it, it's not it's not really done in as elegant a way as, say, a film we're going to talk about a little later, Martha, sure. Marcy, May, Marlene. They just go back and forth seamlessly, and this movie fails to do that. Well, I, I think there's a compelling movie to be made that does mix Hoover's professional and personal life. This just wasn't it. You know, It was just kind of done tactlessly and, and airlessly and too stuffily you know somebody like and you know we talk about this filmmaker a lot on the show as somebody who's sort of lost his mojo but somebody like oliver stone in his heyday could have knocked this out of the park because he's not afraid to take a stance one way or another i think eastwood kind of is eastwood doesn't really want to say anything or make even a political statement about what what it is that j edgar hoover's doing except maybe a general sort of hey, maybe the government should stay out of our business sort of thing. But even there, I, I kind of feel like it's a tepid statement at best because the movie does send kind of mixed messages about Hoover's professional life. And even his personal life, like I said, it doesn't seem real committed to the idea that he was he was gay. The only thing it really seems committed to is the idea that his relationship with his mother sort of put him on this very repressed uh, path personally and professionally. And and those scenes really didn't work for me either with Judy Dench playing the, the Hoover matriarch. There's just nothing to him. Well, I just don't think she really went after it in a way that she could have. She wasn't. I don't, I don't think anybody just, did. I mean, it's, well, it's, another, it's one of those Eastwood movies where like everybody's just sort of doing their jobs. They're coasting. They're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're coasting. They're going to get off. You know, get off the set by two p.m. They're gonna well, have their it, evenings. You know, it's just it felt it feels like that. And I criticize I criticize Eastwood for this in Invictus, which feels the same way. Hereafter is worse, if possible, because there's not a script there. I mean, it's just this is just the same old thing he's been doing. He's got to get some sense of life back into it. I mean, even Changeling, a movie that I don't really like that much, it feels more vibrant it feels like somebody is trying the last couple just haven't well look i won't fault eastwood for departing from what he normally does i think directors might should do that more often oh yeah yeah you're right and he definitely does here and you're right somebody like oliver stone would have knocked this out of the park and i wish that he had in retrospect but something about eastwood is he never really puts the technical side of his filmmaking before the story. I think that that's something that can be said about him. And I think this time he does the opposite. I think that technically there's a lot to be said about this movie. Again, it looks great, and I think that he establishes a pretty good sense of place. It's a pretty pretty solid period film, yeah. especially yeah. back in the early part of the 20th century. I bought it. I totally sure. did. And honestly... Those were the more entertaining aspects of the story to me, and that's when I thought DiCaprio did his better work. Let's sort of talk about DiCaprio here before we're done, because mm-hmm. he is in almost literally every frame of this film. He portrays J. Edgar Hoover, and he immerses himself physically, and I think he does an adequate job again, and I hate to keep using that word, but this is nowhere near as interesting as the work Leonardo DiCaprio did in 2010. 
obviously. And honestly, it frustrates me because, look, Leonardo DiCaprio, he can make whatever movie he wants, but didn't he already get out of his system this sprawling, epic biopic of a man-obsessed cultural figure Mm -hmm. in the public who made noise publicly and had a very interesting private life back with The Aviator in 2004. It just feels like this is a similar performance, and I hope that he got that out of his system, and I feel like Leo is sort of retreading some of the ground he's already visited before. The Aviator is much, much better. Yeah, I'll say The Aviator is better than this, for sure. But again, this is just sort of a... Uh, lukewarm film it yeah. really is I mean there's not much to be said and look I, I am a fan of Changeling I think that it deserves another look from you I think it's a pretty good movie and it has a lot of great performances and I don't think that Eastwood necessarily inspired the same level of performances and those that he has in his previous works yeah, Invictus again is it's sort of of the same cloth I think this is a little better than that and I think this is a little better than obviously a little better than Hereafter it's just sort of a middling work from a yeah, director in his twilight years I, I agree years. it's better than the last two films that he's done but you know you you look at the cast that he's got you look at the production value that he's got and you just hope that this is going to be the one that just sort of snaps him out of it and wakes him up and and sort of produces something inspired this just it just doesn't feel inspired do you think that this has and and again this is probably we're probably going to be accused for missing the forest from the trees but do you think this has any awards potential I think that Leo is very close to being a lock at this really? point. For not, yeah, I do. I, just because, just because of who he is and who directed the movie, and well, that, and I think that critically, he is getting a lot of attention and positive attention. The movie too, itself is not getting no I mean, very the, good reviews. The last time I checked, it was at like forty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. if not a little higher. So people aren't really warming up to this at all, but they are singling out Leo's performance, and that's about it. I think you could make a case for the art direction, some of the costume design, and they really focus on clothes in this movie, too. I mean, they really point it out. It's almost like they're campaigning within the movie. Right. But, no, beyond Leo's performance, which may or may not deserve the nomination, I don't see it getting nominated for much else. I just can't muster up too much enthusiasm for his performances because it feels of a piece with the movie, just this tightly controlled, airless, pulseless sort of thing. It's just, it doesn't really inspire of me too much admiration, despite it, you know, obviously that being the intent of the performance, it just doesn't, I don't know, it just, there's just, I guess I probably found it more impressive, you know, in the moment watching the movie, but in hindsight, it just doesn't, it didn't really do much for me. Well, in a distraction along with the makeup, it's sort of a combination between the makeup and Leonardo DiCaprio's young voice right. in this movie. He right. plays a man in his 70s, and he's still using, without any sort of change to his voice, he's still using 30-something-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio's inflection. And to me, it just came off kind of silly and yeah. amateurish. And that that's a fault to both DiCaprio and Eastwood. I mean, if you're going to make a movie about old people, cast old people. Don't be afraid to do that and give an old timer a shot at J. Edgar Hoover and, you know, maybe use a younger actor in flashbacks of his life. I mean, I know that this was accomplished in 1941 in Citizen Kane, and it seems like you said before they're sort of paying homage in a few different ways, especially with the makeup. They look eerily similar, but it just doesn't really come off. You know, I, I actually did have a thought about midway through the movie that old age Clyde Tolson bore more than a passing resemblance to Clint Eastwood. Oh, you think so? Yeah, <laughs> well, and and I kind of I kind of was like, why didn't Eastwood just step in and play Clyde Tolson as an old person and have somebody else play old Edgar Hoover 
Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. There's just so He's many. He's too tough for that role, man. I, I guess. But but see, that's it's just it's it's like that. It's it's there's just cognitive dissonance all over the place. You've got tough guy Clint Eastwood directing. You know, a movie about the closeted homosexual J. Edgar Hoover, who's, but they, you know, we're not going to dwell on that, even though that the script postulates that's entirely what's driving his psychology. It's just like Eastwood wants to have his prestige homosexual psychological picture and have it not be that simultaneously. I don't get it. I yeah, don't, I don't it, understand the motivations behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a mess, and it just never really takes a stance when it needs to. But the film is playing nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. Well, when we come back, we become teachers and leaders as we return to Sean Durkin's creepy commune, otherwise known as the buzzworthy Martha Marcy May Marlene. Stay with us. Something not even money can buy. The knives of Kwan Knives? Oh yeah, seriously. That's something money can't buy. Knives. Once I went to a country store and said, here's $100,000, can I buy a knife? They said, no, money can't buy knives. Is there no way we can shut this chattering monkey up? You know, I'd cut him, but I don't have a knife. We're back on Aspect Radio with Corey Kraft and producer Andrew Richardson. I'm Ben Flanagan. A few weeks ago, on our Halloween episode, my brother Graham told us about director Sean Durkin's Sundance darling Martha Marcy May Marlene, which saw a wider release this weekend, making its way all the way down to Alabama here at the Lee Branch Rave in Birmingham. What's going on? She's here now. She seems okay. What'd she say? She had some boyfriend. They were living in the Catskills. Is this Martha? Martha. You look like a Marcy May. We've got a really nice place here. It's as much yours as it is mine. Where are we? Connecticut. Well, how far are we? From what? Yesterday. You mean from where I picked you up? About three hours. Why? Do you ever have that feeling where you can't tell if something's a memory or if it's something you dream? I don't blame you for not trusting people. If you're ever going to have a meaningful relationship, you need to let your guard down. We want to help you. Let us in. What happened to you? You're a teacher and a leader, Marcy. Now prove it. Shoot it. They're living animals. So shoot Max then. Go ahead. I know who I am. I am a teacher and a leader. You just... Never let me be that. I don't think she should stay with us anymore. We can't ignore the fact that her behavior is insane. I'm her only family. We have to leave. We all have to leave. What happened? I don't know. So, Corey, actually, you look more like a Casey. (laughs) We won't spend much time on the plot other than to say that Elizabeth Olsen plays Martha, a young woman who escapes a cult not unlike what we've read about the Manson family and returns to her sister where she attempts to reassimilate herself back to, quote-unquote, normal life in beautiful Connecticut at her sister and brother-in-law's lake house. But as you might expect from a person who disappears to a cult for two years, Martha begins showing signs of strange behavior, unfit for this so-called normal life. So, Carrie, I'll put it simply without revealing my own hand just yet, but were you as impressed and frightened by Sean Durkin's jumbled tale of paranoia and helplessness? And would you consider the debut filmmaker a teacher and a leader? Well, Martha Marcy May Marlene is an uh, amazing, marvelous, magnificent masterpiece, to put it alliteratively. 
Uh, how about that? It's pretty good. Should get props for that. Yeah, not bad. Amazing not bad, starts with an A. Yeah, but, you know. yeah. You know. <laughs> what are you going to do? I described this on Twitter as an hour and 41 minute panic attack, which is exactly how I felt watching this movie. It's like the air gets sucked out of the room while you're watching it as the movie goes on and as, as the hysteria grows. You know, it reminded me, though quite different in style, of course, of Black Swan from last year and of the films of Roman Polanski, which sort of do put you in the headspace of, of a troubled young woman, though this one obviously is a lot more naturalistic and, and less interested in portraying, you know, a fractured psyche in as much as, there, as, as psychopathy is concerned. But it does present a, a fractured... I don't know, sense of, of time, both in its structure and with its uh, heroine's mental state. I thought this was a fabulous movie. It really is. And normally, I hate to say this almost, but when Graham really, really recommends something, he's either right on the money 100% or I think he's totally and completely wrong. I think, you know, there's no middle ground there. He never he never really like is in love with something that I will see and just think is okay. I'll either see it and I'll be like, Graham was totally correct or what the hell is he thinking with this this is just completely nuts because i think out of all of us he is the most iconoclastic uh in his tastes you mean um, you weren't on board with the christmas carol that uh, year no i can't i can't <laughs> say that i was but i think he was right on with his praise for this in the, in the previous episode though i will say you know as much praise as he afforded elizabeth olsen and sarah paulson who plays her sister i don't think he once mentioned john hawks in his review and john hawks once again, uh, a year after Winter's Bone delivers another quietly menacing, understated, villainous performance that just, you know, especially as things heat up, just gets more and more terrifying. Yeah, and he does it in a better movie, too, than Winter's Bone. But you're absolutely right. This is a movie that totally works because it has you looking over your shoulder during the film. I know. And it's it's yeah. just, oh, God. And after the film and after the final moment, which we may or may not talk about here a little later, I mean, I, I walked out literally shaken. I did, too. That's a sign of a good horror movie, a good psychological thriller, whatever you want to call this movie. I mean, it could qualify for a lot of different things, but I think it's really unique unto itself. It's a different movie to come out, and it's one that we're definitely going to remember 2011 for, yeah, for sure. Sean Durkin, to me, I mean, along with Elizabeth Olsen, is the real star here. I mean, this is a debut film, and it's one that you can't really believe. I mean, this is something that obviously isn't shot for very much. If you just have a really good script and a committed cast and somebody who has complete control of tone and sense of place, then you've really got something. And Sean Durkin is an incredible talent, and his cinematographer is as well. They, Jody Lee Lippis. They each do brilliant work. but It's so assured in its filmmaking and in its editing. I mean, it's hard to believe this is a debut feature. Well, we should talk about the editing, too, and I don't know the editor's name. Do I, you? I don't recall. Well, he, again, is another star here because we talked before during Jay Edgar how Clint Eastwood and his editors had a little bit of trouble going back and forth between eras depicted in J. Edgar's life. Well, here in this film, it's completely seamless, and it has to be, too, to serve the purpose of the narrative, because you're really sort of juggling not only eras, but just states of mind here of the main character, Martha. You never really know what world you're in as you're watching, and especially when you're seeing these isolated shots of her, yeah. you have no idea which world she's in, and she's just sort of traveling back and forth. And that sort of picks up in intensity and, and fervor and in confusion as the film goes on. You know, at the start of the movie, you have a pretty clear sense of when each scene is taking place. But as it goes on and it gets more frenzied and her mental state becomes clearer to, to the audience, it, it does sort of you do get these isolated shots and, and these moments of, of darkness and, and just 
punctuated sound that that sort of come out of nowhere that sort of puts you on edge the whole time and and you're uncertain of when this is happening ah it's just i mean it really gets under your skin throughout the progress of the film. It does, and Durkin, along with Darren Aronofsky, whose film you mentioned before, they they really have a great grasp on how to manipulate the audience. They really do, and this movie gets compared with the early work of someone like Roman Polanski in these films that really sort of touch upon paranoia and introduce that as a theme and actually a real tangible thing as you're watching them. And again, you feel what Martha is feeling as even though we're not really let inside of her head, we never really know what move she'll make next. We're sort of looking through the eyes of her sister and her brother-in-law at times when she is exhibiting this extremely strange behavior when she gets back to this so-called real life that's almost as isolated as the commune itself when she's with Mm -hmm. this cult of sorts. And it's never really expressed what the cult really believes in explicitly. Anyway, you do sort of get some ideas from this leader played by John Hawks, but I think it's really interesting that Durkin leaves ambiguous the reasons she joined this cult, even though there are some conversations between her and her family when she's back about uh, material things and how possessions define you as a person and how she doesn't necessarily believe in that. And we won't spend too much time on it. But I just think that Durkin, without painting in very broad strokes at all, I just really think that this guy has mastered subtlety already in one film. And again, I mean, we definitely should praise the work by Olsen, who has just burst onto the scene. And of course, we probably didn't give her the benefit of the doubt or we we would not have going into just your average movie considering who she's related to. Right. But she's the real deal. She really is. I mean, she just, she gets emotion and she knows how to lock it up and let it out when she needs to. Yeah. She knocks it out of the park. And, And just the fact that she's able to sustain audience sympathy throughout a pretty distance performance like this, like you said, we never do get into her headspace exactly, but she's wounded. The audience recognizes that and we're able to get, enough of of what we need so that when we do sort of understand finally where she's coming from, it it does affect us as an audience. It's frankly sort of terrifying. You know, for example, early in the film, there's a scene where Martha in, in her sister's lake house hears a noise. And it's only later in the film that we understand what that noise is and what it means to her and how that would have frightened her. And when we finally do get that revelation, it, it's it's, again, just a chest tightening moment where you think you know the tension's just ratcheted up even more and you begin to share her fears mm-hmm. that are very possibly unfounded but but left ambiguous right Durkin does that throughout the movie yeah. too I mean there are objects and people that we see yeah. at different points in the film and they all have meaning and they're connected and once you find out what those connections are you're again you're frightened and you don't know what's coming around the corner you don't know who's going to knock on the door or who's going to jump out in front of your car. Right. But briefly, let's talk about this ending that has obviously gained some controversy as the film has finally been seen by so many people, and it's been regarded as one that is ambiguous for sure. I mean, Mm -hmm. it ends on kind of a question mark, but you sort of take away what you want. Some people might think that it's laid out there and the ending provides enough closure, and some people have no idea where it might go. But for you, I mean, did, did you sort of have an idea of Martha's next step or what might happen to her or her family? No, I I just saw the ending really as being the last nail in the coffin, so to speak, of putting the audience in her mindset that, you know, that did it, you know, that was sort of the, the piece did the resistance as far as, as getting you where her head is. 
you know, the whole time the movie builds up and builds up and builds up and, and gets you into that mindset, into this really paranoid uh, young woman's head, and then the last scene just cements it. And so you're left with the same feeling of, of terror and uncertainty that, that she is in that last scene. I don't really think it matters too much what happens next. The movie ends, and it ends with the audience being just as, as horrified with the possibilities as Martha, no doubt, will be for the rest of her life. Well, and had this not happened in reality, you know, obviously I wouldn't have thought about it as I was watching it, but I, I really couldn't stop myself from thinking about the situation in State College and with mm-hmm. Penn State. And I think that you can draw several parallels as you watch this movie between Martha and uh, the victims that you read about here in this uh, situation. And I mean, I think that this movie, uh, the, the word I used in my intro was helplessness. And this is a person who has had trauma in her life at a very early age and might have had trauma even before that. And that might have been one of the reasons she joined this group when she did. And she's just someone who needs to be cared for in one manner or or the other. And I think that once we reach the end of the movie, that idea is reinforced. Mm -hmm. Whichever way she goes, Martha is a person who cannot take care of herself and she needs someone else to do that. And Durkin just really does, and in, in again, a very isolated and a very frightening way and totally effective. And Durkin is just in, I know that he is friends with another filmmaker who has made a work that people have responded to, this movie After School. Have you seen it? No, I haven't it's yet. It's wonderful. I do want to see it, but these, these are players right now on the indie yeah. circuit or whatever circuit they end up on. And Sean Durkin, especially since I've seen his work, this is a guy who <laughs> surveillance must be kept on Sean Durkin. Well, it sounds sure. unanimous then. Absolutely, and the film is playing in limited release currently in Alabama at the Lee Branch Rave Theater in Birmingham. I, I hope that the uh, Bama Art House series brings us to town. I think it would be a big hit. Totally. Audience. We'll take another short break and come back with some thoughts on Eddie Murphy's decision to step down as host of this year's Oscar ceremony. Stick around. What do you mean, John Milner? Hey, nobody could beat him, man. He's got the fastest. I ain't nobody, Gord. Right? We're back here on Aspect Radio. Ben, the Oscars are several months away, and we're not quite ready to share our predictions, but news broke last week that the man tapped as host of the broadcast, Eddie Murphy, decided to step down from the gig after his buddy and show producer, Brett Ratner, resigned after a couple of PR snafus while promoting his and Murphy's comedy, Tower Heist. So in walks new producer, Brian Grazer, coincidentally also a producer of Tower Heist, and in walks Billy Crystal, marking his eighth time to host the broadcast. Ben, not that this really matters, but how do you feel about Billy Crystal returning as Oscar host? I'm okay with it. Yeah. But, but look, Crystal is a proven commodity here with the Oscars broadcast, and he's a great fallback plan here for ABC. And he's always funny, and his songs and dances that he delivers at the top of the broadcast are always entertaining. And Billy Crystal's just somebody that everybody likes, especially Hollywood. Yeah. And, People are going to respond to him, and I think that people are breathing sort of a sigh of relief now that Billy Crystal is the host here. Well, certainly the Academy is. Yeah, absolutely, and because Eddie Murphy's off of the project, and so is Brett Ratner, and I think a lot of people were concerned about that. It might have been going in a different direction, but it was still Brett Ratner. You know, this is the, I was concerned about that. Yeah, this guy is sort of the poster child of mediocrity in Hollywood, and you might have gotten the same results with. The Oscars, you never know. But I was a little disappointed that Eddie Murphy stepped down because not only do I think Eddie Murphy is great and I'm a big fan of his 
older work, I can't say that I like Norbit. Not, not Norbit fan. <laughs> I can't say I like Norbit or Meet Dave, mainly because I haven't seen either of them by oh, choice. Man, you're missing out. But Eddie Murphy is a legend. He's hilarious, and he's one of the, the great comedy gods out there. And to sort of pluck him out of what I would call obscurity these days, to me, was a refreshing move on the part of the Academy. And you got to give Brett Ratner some credit for at least making an inspired choice and bringing Eddie Murphy to the party. And I think he would have been great. But the fact that he obviously has loyalty to a guy like Brett Ratner, or I'll say an artist like Brett Ratner. I don't know the guy, Brett Ratner. Only what I've heard on the Howard Stern show, but only what he said in right. You know. <laughs> but the fact that he was loyal to that guy—that's what's a little disappointing to me. If I had my pick of the litter, you know, I had my choices. If it's me and I'm producing the show, I want somebody who's funny and is going to be engaging throughout the night. No offense, Corey, I know that you launched your own campaign, grassroots campaign on Twitter, <laughs> to, to host the Oscars. Didn't work, but uh, <laughs> you failed. I feel like I would have. I feel like I would have added something really special. Well, look to me, the the most entertaining part of the night, other than the surprises you might get with some of the awards that are handed out is the monologue. And the monologue is really it. It's going to be the thing that grabs your attention and maybe holds it for the rest of the night. And I think that the show has been best when you've had someone who is skilled at telling jokes and is a stand-up comedian for that matter. And I think Billy Crystal is as well-rounded of an entertainer as you're going to get. So he definitely works and he can deliver a monologue. And he's one of those guys that Hollywood seems to be okay with poking fun at itself. But again, me, I would go with a late night host, somebody like Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon, or even you reach back to last year's Golden Globes and the year before and you see if Ricky Gervais is up for it because, yeah, he might draw controversy and Hollywood might not be totally satisfied with how it was treated when they were in his hands, but the guy gets headlines and ratings and he's hilarious and you can't deny that. The Oscars are too, they're too important to allow right. You know, Ricky Gervais in there. The Golden Globes, they're a bunch of drunken buffoons anyway, so it doesn't matter that he... Messes up that. I mean, party. he's drinking on stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why he does it, I'm sure, because he's allowed to. Billy Crystal's a safe choice, but I agree. He's the guy that you'd want in your corner if your host drops out in November. He's the guy who would be able to come in and step up and pick up the slack because he's so practiced at it. No, he's not the most exciting choice. I wasn't that pumped up for Eddie Murphy, to be honest, because, I mean, it's not like raw era Eddie Murphy. It's, you know, post-imagine that Eddie Murphy hosting the Oscars. So it's not like he was going to add too much to it, because I, you know, to be honest, in the past several years, with the exception of that year that Jon Stewart sort of brought along Stephen Colbert and the rest of the Daily Show correspondents to make these... uh little bits. I don't think hosts have really personalized the Oscars or brought much to them, except maybe last year when it was a disaster, not really helped by the hosts there. They sort of didn't really liven up the proceedings. Otherwise, I don't really feel like they add that much. And Billy Crystal seems like the perfect not going to add that much host who's going to make jokes and be safe and be fun and do what he does, and then everybody's going to have a perfectly adequate time. You know, it it is what it is, but it's going to be funnier than, <laughs> than last year's show. Yeah, last year. Almost by default. It really was a disaster. What did you think of this Muppets campaign? Logistically, I, I would think it would be impossible just to have puppeteers under the stage at all times, 
you know, making improvised jokes and whatnot. But I wouldn't be surprised if they popped up just to present an award. Yeah, or they like pre-recorded yeah, some sort of something bit. like that. Yeah, I thought that that would have been at least inspired. And again, yeah, yeah, this is safe. Billy Crystal isn't everybody's first choice these days, but it's not someone who's going to dampen the evening. That's for sure. It's yeah. going to be he's going to be funny. My he, first choice to host the Oscars would have been me. Well, Corey, but, it's not all about you. you know, okay, it's about. If I couldn't get the attention of the Academy with a well-organized and well-planned grassroots Twitter campaign, such as the one that I launched last week, I don't, I don't know what else I can do. Well, it's about gift baskets with the Queen DVD inside, wrapped Dude, inside. Okay, I, I would have not... worked for really cheap. I just want the Academy to know that. I all I need is like to see the movies and a gift basket with like an iPad. Well, look, there's always next year, Corey. If Billy Crystal bombs, then I'm sure you're going to be. Number right, right at the top of that list. You're going to be like number 74 on their list. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, we'll take one more break and come back and share our Hollywood has-beens. And Billy Crystal, it's safe to say that you won't make the cut this time. So congratulations. Stay with us. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. We are back on Aspect Radio. Corey, we generally try to stay positive around here, even when our football team doesn't have its best season. (sighs) But sometimes we've got to reflect on the things that we're not so proud of in the movies, namely our favorite filmmakers and performers who seem to be losing their fastball, so to speak. Legends of the industry who continue to work but fail to recall today what made them, as I said, legends in the past. So now we will share three people whom we might think fall into this category of Hollywood has-beens. I regretfully say to those we list, this will hurt us way more than it'll hurt you, so don't worry. So, Corey, I'll describe to you my first person, and you tell me whether or not you think he or she is a has-been. All right, bring it on. This is a one-time Oscar winner, eight-time nominee, but hasn't been nominated in nearly 20 years and hasn't really carried a good movie since early last decade. And he's often regarded as one of the greatest actors of all time, and I think that's fair. But it just feels like this guy can't keep up with his own contemporaries who continue to do fine work in their twilight years. And he, of course, is Al Pacino. So, Corey, is Al Pacino a has-been? Um, I don't know. You know, he's in that Sandler movie, the, the Jack and Jill thing, and I think that might be the final straw, but I, I would still... Yeah, I guess he kind of is. Well, people are saying that he's the best part of that movie too. <laughs> that doesn't take that doesn't take much. <laughs> but I can't think of a movie that I've seen him in recently that I've actually enjoyed. So I think the last performance that I liked him in was a minor role, and it was in Ocean's Thirteen. And oh, I think, that's right. I think he I finally he got he finally got some good dialogue to deliver, and it seemed like he was having some fun and playing with these guys who were sort of the the Al Pacinos of their own era in in some ways I guess yeah. but before that I guess Insomnia was probably oh, the last yeah. movie that he he's, carried he's good and before that. that The Insider and after oh, he's that he's really good in that yeah and, but see that's 1999 yeah and after that it's just been sort of dry I mean what, what like Righteous Kill with De Niro that's a terrible movie I, 88 Minutes yeah it's a terrible movie what's Simone Simone <laughs> Yeah, I. What else? You know, and then the Jack recruit, and Jill. the recruit. Oh my God! Two for the go. money. Oh yeah. Oh, it's just a cavalcade it's of painful. mediocrity. Just it's really painful. One thing after another. Just these movies that I've 
forgotten about. Okay, here's that he was in. Here's one thing I will give him credit for, and this is not a feature film. This was on TV, and it's the film You Don't Know Jack, where he played Jack Kevorkian. And I'll at least say that Al Pacino does finally act again in that movie, and it's a pretty good movie, and it's yeah. an excellent performance. I, I didn't see that. He was he was good in, in Mike Nichols. Uh, Angels in America miniseries. Too. Which is a while back, too. What was yeah, that, like 2004? Oh, okay. Well. 2003? I don't know. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. I wish Al Pacino would come back. Yep. Well, okay. Here's my first has-been. This may seem familiar. This performer has received one Oscar nomination, and it was fairly recent, but he's more fondly remembered for his madcap and hilarious comedic performances throughout the 80s and 90s. He had a comeback of sorts in the late 90s with one very popular film which, in which he showcased an unbelievable amount of versatility, but has toiled away in the no-doubt lucrative arena of voiceover work and family comedy since then. Most of those family comedies, to be frank, are fairly terrible. Terrible. Most recently, he flirted with another comeback to adult comedy with the film Tower Heist and now an ill-fated opportunity to host the Academy Awards. It gives me no pleasure at all to say this, Ben, because I know who you've guessed what I'm talking about. But in light of the past week and in light of Tower Heist itself, do you think that Eddie Murphy is now a Hollywood has-been like I do? No. I really don't. You you don't want to give up the faith. No, I don't. And but you haven't seen Norbit, and you haven't seen Meet Dave, and you haven't seen Imagine That. No. Did you see the fourth Shrek movie? <laughs> no. Those are those are enough. Those are enough right there. Okay, here's why. I saw him recently on Jimmy Fallon, the late night talk show with Jimmy Fallon, and he was a guest, and he had a couple of segments on there. And yeah, I was with you before because I'm not a fan of the Shrek movies, and I'm not a fan of the trailers to those movies you mentioned before, and I just <laughs> felt like. Eddie Murphy has done a lot of uninspired work over the last decade. Yes. And it's a shame. And yes, he, and very much so. Look, and he's he's one of the uh, most notable missing persons of the last 10 to 15 years, that's for sure. And I was a fan of the first Nutty Professor back when that came out. Right. I thought it was hilarious. It's very good. And it was a resurgence for Eddie Murphy, too. Absolutely. And I think he's got one of those in him because the energy that I saw him bring to just the Jimmy Fallon show reminded me, and this was before he stepped down as the Oscars host, it reminded me that this guy loves to perform and this guy is talented in a way that's unparalleled. He still is. And he's this guy who owned SNL, owned films in the 1980s and 90s. And look, the Shrek movies aren't very good, but something that you can say about Murphy's work there is that he brings a lot of energy to those. And like it or not, the fact that he doesn't just cruise his way through it, and I mean, you could say that a lot of people that do animated voice work probably cruise through a lot of what they do. Again, I can see the energy there behind the microphone, even though it's one of the most iconically annoying characters in film history. <laughs> but no, I think that Eddie Murphy still has it in him. I mean, he was still doing voices, and he was reenacting some of the mannerisms that made him famous in the first place, and that's something that obviously a guy like Jimmy Fallon would bring out of anybody. But based on his film work... Yeah, he's he's sort of a has-been at this point. But I think, and I haven't seen Tower Heist, and you have, I think. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. And he's he doesn't do much in it. He's just, well, one, he's tragically underused in the movie. And two, when he does show up, it's, you know, while it is more adult-oriented and he does have the opportunity to curse and be, you know, energetic Eddie Murphy, just, I mean, it's just a bland movie. It's a bland role in a bland movie, and it doesn't seem altogether that different from anything he else he's done, except it's just geared towards people over the age of 15. But I gotta, I mean, I gotta dispute that. A lot of terrible actors have energy. It's just, maybe he can recapture what he had, but he isn't. And he has not been. He just doesn't seem to want to, and that's why he made my list. Well, I think that he would have with the Oscars, because I think if you put Eddie Murphy 
in a room full of people in a live setting, I think special things happen. And he hasn't done that in a long time. It's not that he hasn't been able to. He just hasn't done it. He hasn't been given an opportunity to do it. And thank goodness he, for a moment there, was going to get the chance. But unfortunately, that fell through. And we won't really know until he is given another one, uh, given another shot at it. So, yeah, I mean, film-wise, definitely Eddie Murphy is a has-been, unfortunately. But I think that the comedian is still out there and still talented and is raring to go again. I want him back, too. It's just, you know, i got to work with the evidence that we have. <laughs> well, let's talk about the evidence for my next one. And Eddie Murphy was actually on my list, mm-hmm. so we've canceled one of mine out. So, obviously, I had similar feelings. But my next one, another Oscar winner and two-time nominee. This man is responsible for one of our most beloved science fiction franchises and is considered by many a pioneer of modern film special effects. But losing himself to one particular special effect format that has dominated his recent filmography. It seems like this director is doing less innovating and, sadly, more regressing. And this, of course, would be Robert Zemeckis. Totally agree. 100% for the reasons that you said. (laughs) I think he's going to make a return to live-action film in the next year or two with this Denzel Washington movie that keeps being bandied about. It might be too little too late, though, as far as I'm concerned, because this guy, again... was one of the pioneers of special effects in modern filmmaking and has been responsible for some of the best implementation of of special effects in modern filmmaking and with Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump, two marvels of, of their time. Most of all, he's an expert storyteller. The script for Back to the Future is perfect, just 100% from start to finish. You cannot find a better structured script than that in the past 40 years of Hollywood filmmaking. And the fact that the guy who brought that to the screen has been wasting his time with this this technology that he's pioneered uh, with motion capture animation to often lifeless and just middling results is one of the great disappointments of the last 10 years of filmmaking. Andrew wants to say something, I think. It's funny, Ben. I thought when you were describing this person, it was George Lucas, <laughs> which I think might actually be a little bit easier question yeah. to answer. There's, when you were first saying that... <laughs> we're over, George Lucas. He's, he's yeah, in the was, Hall of Fame. That was, that was what came Aspen's into my, my mind initially. <laughs> yeah, this is probably the George Lucas memorial list that we're talking about here. But it is unfortunate because, I mean, if you look at something like the Back to the Future trilogy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, just based on those four films alone, and I include all three Back to the Future movies, which I think are science fiction masterpieces. I'm just a big fan of the series. But if you look at just that output, Robert Zemeckis should have been a candidate, I guess you could say, for this Mount Rushmore of American filmmakers right there with somebody like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, say, like in his heyday Mm -hmm. when he was good at what he did. But (laughs) Zemeckis was, again, a pioneer. And this was a guy who was telling just stories that had not been told yet. It's just a shame that he has lost himself to mocap. And while he's done some interesting things with it, I just don't think he's improving as a filmmaker uh, with this. And I just wish that we could have him back because, I mean, you mentioned Forrest Gump too. And I think that in retrospect, Forrest Gump gets a lot of, honestly gets a lot of unfair criticism from people who sort of make fun of it. But I think Forrest Gump is as good as it was when it came out in 94. It's a fantastic movie and Zemeckis deserved all the praise he got. And again, he implemented a lot of the special effects that if it weren't for those special effects in Forrest Gump, a lot of what we see now would not exist. And that might be also something to fault him for uh, based on some of the effects-driven movies that are out there now. But the thing you can say about it is he used them practically and subtly, 
and they served the purpose of the story. And now it seems that it's just overkill with Zemeckis, and he's using them to derail his stories. He made used cars. He's in the Pantheon <laughs> for that. Used cars puts you in the Pantheon? Used cars okay. alone would, because that movie's awesome. Sure. But, okay. uh, our, yeah, I agree, unfortunately, with Robert Zemeckis there. Then this second individual is responsible for some of my favorite movies of all time, indisputed classics in a certain genre, who quite simply lost it a little less than 20 years ago and just hasn't gotten that mojo back. You probably already know who I'm talking about. After one genre hit after another in the 1980s, he lost that magic in the 90s, directing an ill-begotten sequel to one of his most popular works, floundering in sci-fi horror mishmashes, and finally vanishing from the big screen altogether until this year, when his latest film, The Ward, was barely released. When I saw it... Felt lazy and uninspired. It's quite frankly pretty awful. Not at all like a product of the man who brought us the eponymous slasher film Halloween and one of the best horror movies ever made, The Thing. Ben, is John Carpenter has been, and how much does it hurt you to say that? <laughs> yeah, he is, and it hurts me very much so. Look, I knew who John Carpenter was a long time ago. I was familiar with Halloween and some of his other movies, and he was just one of those guys whose name came before a lot of titles as you were growing up, and you didn't see that very often. You would see Alfred Hitchcock's or Steven Spielberg's or even like Stephen King's before titles, and John Carpenter was one of those guys. And when I finally became a little more familiar with what he did early in his career, I got excited, and I feel like I got excited probably in the way that people did when John Carpenter was emerging as a director and to me as an auteur, I think that he was a unique voice in cinema. And once I sort of progressed throughout his filmography, I think I probably became just as disappointed as the same people. Declining were. returns. They are declining returns and it's just you, you have to sort of try and spot where exactly he lost his mojo. And it has to be somewhere in the late eighties, early nineties there. I'd say in the mouth or in the mouth of madness was probably his last <laughs> Last good one. With Sam Neill? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is we're talking about has-beens here, and obviously they've done great work, and those are things that you cannot take away from them in this discussion. And they're established, and it's unfortunate that we're having this conversation, and I'm sorry we have to, but yeah, John Carpenter, I mean, he just makes B pictures now. He did so much more than that at one time, and he was so talented. And every Halloween, I feel like revisiting the thing and Halloween and just sort of reminding myself of this great filmmaker that we once had and sort of giving myself new hope that maybe he can rebottle what he had. Did you see the ward? I haven't yet. I mean, yeah. it's such a, I guess it had such a sparse release that it sort of flew under my radar. Is it available on DVD now? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been out on DVD for a little <laughs> see, while. I didn't even know. I mean, it's, it's at a point now where, I look forward to what John Carpenter is doing next, but once I see what it is, and it's unfair of me not to give the film a chance, but once I see what it is, the word just didn't look extremely interesting to me. It's not. Uh, just like <laughs> vampires didn't look extremely interesting to me, <laughs> and it's not either. So, yeah, it, it, it's sad, but it's a reality that I kind of accepted a while back. Yeah. Well, I've got one more. Okay. It's hard to suggest frankly, that this actor is a has-been based on the terms of financial success, but you and I both know that financial success isn't everything. It means less to us than maybe most people. There's no question, though, that this actor is in the most financially successful portion of his career, but given the great work he gave us before this success, it's hard to say that it's been a particularly satisfying time 
for fans of his. Sure, he's received a number of Oscar nominations this decade, but it's not been for the adventurous, often dangerous work that he did in the past. And while he still occasionally works with rogue sorts of directors, it's never to the degree that he did in the 90s and so forth. He's been mostly resigned to tentpole land in the past few years with artistically declining returns. And it pains me to say this, but I can't shake the feeling that working exclusively with Disney and director Tim Burton in one blockbuster after another has relegated the once- adventurous Johnny Depp to being a Hollywood has been, at least artistically, since he's still debatably one of the biggest movie stars in the world, financially. What do you think about that? I think Johnny Depp is one of the most overrated actors of the last decade. I really do. And it's not necessarily anything that I have against Johnny Depp, because I think he's great, and I think he's still talented. And look, this was all the way back in 2003. It's hard to really believe that. But when the first Pirates film came out, I was on board just like everybody else was. I right. thought he gave a spirited performance, and this was a guy who was doing something weird and extremely mainstream film. And I was happy that he got the Oscar nomination and nearly stole it. I was totally fine with that. But when I say that he's overrated, I just look at the body of work over the last 10 years, and I can't really say that I'm impressed by much. Sweeney Todd's great, but well, it's great. He's pretty good in it. But that's as far as I'll go. It's great. Well, but <laughs> I mean, you look at you look at the, you know, the first Pirates movie and Sweeney Todd, two movies for which he was nominated for, for the Academy Award along with Finding Neverland for the third one, which is squeamish. Which is all right. It's alright. It's squeamish. It's, all right. it's it's not very good. It's, it's sappy right. and manipulative and it, just it not is. not very but, well done. But I mean, you you look at what he's done with Tim Burton, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Alice in Wonderland, and then the diminishing Pirates sequels. Where is Johnny Depp? What have you done with him? You know, I understand that he gets a lot of joy playing the Jack Sparrow character, and I understand that he likes working with his buddy Tim Burton, who probably got Johnny Depp's overall best performance out of him in Ed Wood. Yeah, and Ed Wood's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, no, it's 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 wonderful. But I mean, where is the guy who would work with like Jim Jarmusch in Dead Man and and give a totally off the wall performance in a totally off the wall movie like that? You know, where where is that guy? Where is oddball Johnny Depp who's not afraid to mix his more mainstream leanings because let's face it you know for every dead man we also had a nick of time you know hey man don't 90s. hate on nick of time uh, but God. but um did nick of time really deserve that <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying i'm just saying he's never been you know a totally iconoclastic maybe the astronaut's actor, wife or something wife, okay yeah. but you know he <laughs> i i just get the feeling that he's not as willing to go out of his comfort zone anymore and maybe, you know, maybe that's because he can afford a small island because of the success of the Pirates movies. You know, maybe if somebody were throwing islands at me, I would do the same thing. But artistically, anyway, I've just got to respect him more for what he did with, with filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch and Terry Gilliam than, yeah. than with the, these Burton special effects extravaganzas that are just unsatisfying on virtually every level. And well, look, I mean, it doesn't feel that long ago when Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas came out, even though I think that was, what, like 98 or 99? Yeah, 98. But in Ed Wood, obviously, in uh, 1994, yeah. um, it's been a while since Step gave those great performances. But, I mean, I'll look at something like Rango, and even though it's, That's an, true. it's an animated movie, you still get performance out of Johnny Depp. He gives a lot of effort there. And I was hoping that The Rum Diary might be one of those diversions. Well, yeah, it just nothing really drew me in to that movie in I'm, terms I'm sure of its, it's marketing. Fine. 
Well, you know, maybe maybe it's better than you know. Maybe I'll see that and be like, oh, I really should have held. My no, discussion. no, I think I think you're right. Again, I mean, this is something that I've thought of in the past couple of weeks in terms of him being one of the more overrated actors of the last decade. Because yeah, you have all of these what seem to be cash grabs on his part, and it seems like he's a guy. Once he found the mainstream success he did in 2003, he couldn't really let it go. And once Disney and these other studios start ponying up and offering him just wads and mountains of cash, it's hard to say no. And I mean, if his buddy Tim Burton says, hey, jump, and Johnny Depp usually says, how high? I mean, I can't blame the two for collaborating because they gave us Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood and Sleepy Hollow, which is an underrated uh, performance. And Johnny Depp's great in that movie. You just hope that maybe with Dark Shadows or something in the future, I can't say I am anticipating a return to form here for either of them, but you just hope that they do. And you got to have faith that we'll they will. See. Well, you, we will see. We've and got Dark Shadows, The Lone Ranger with Disney, and inevitably, I'm sure, a couple more Pirates movies. Yeah, and Tim Burton, he's right there with them, too. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. Alice in Wonderland is a, is a massive headache of a movie, and I think Charlie and the Chocolate Factory has some merits, and at least Johnny Depp was trying something different, I guess. That's a bad movie. Uh, well, its merits are minimal. The, if the first forty minutes of that movie are really good, and it just goes really yeah. off the rails there. I don't know. My allegiances are with Gene Wilder here. <laughs> it was a travesty that it was remade in the first place, but you yeah. kind of have to live with it once it's there. But I know. I know. Anyway, no, I totally agree. And uh, these round out our Hollywood has beens. Again, it's an unfortunate conversation to have, but it's one we have to have every so often. So let's move on here to DVD. And Corey, tell us what's new. Well, basically, if you own a DVD or Blu-ray player, you probably have already picked up Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which rounds out the Harry Potter series, as we discussed earlier in the summer, with considerable skill. It's a pretty great accomplishment, all told, the Harry Potter series, and uh, this one rounds it out with style. It's it's a movie that that I picked up on Friday, and already my wife has watched it like four times. Yeah, she, she likes it quite a bit. You know, lots of great action sequences, lots of great character moments, and, and overall, just a really terrific resolution to the series. Yeah, I agree. It's a good movie. Yeah. It really is, and it was a nice way to finish things off. But, I mean, is that is that it for DVDs this week? Pretty much. I mean, I don't want to talk about the change-up, because I don't want to give that movie any merit. <laughs> you don't want to give it away, either, man. You don't want to give away what happens there in that in movie. The change we shouldn't. Up. We shouldn't. We should. We should dance around the changeup like we did Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. There is a changeup, and that's all I'll say. <laughs> they pee into a fountain. Oh my god! Did you see it? No, I saw the trailer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Andrew, boy. Saw, Andrew and I saw it together. We went to the preview screening in Birmingham. Uh, and that that uh that was guy. Um, you drove to Birmingham to see it. It was. It was free, but your gas money wasn't free. That's true. God, that, and and our time, <laughs> our precious time. Oh man! No, well, I can't say that I really relished that experience, but you know, it just happened to me. So, what are you gonna do? Well, I believe Bellflower comes out this week. It does on Blu-ray, and I haven't seen it yet. But Graham came on our show and gave it a pretty glowing recommendation, so I'm looking forward to it. And we'll see which. You said that Graham goes one way or the other here. Your taste sort of goes one way or the other based on Graham's recommendations. So we'll see where it goes this time. And I we hear that this. Mo- I hear that this movie is an extreme love it or hate it example. Yeah. So yeah. I'm looking forward to it, though. I really am. Oh, I should say that Bellflower is actually going to start at the Capri in Montgomery this week. Oh, huh. yeah. And after that, Take Shelter is going to oh, start. Oh, snap. So I might try to go see that. Yeah, the Capri doing some 
fine work, although Bellflower will be out on DVD and Blu-ray on Tuesday anyway. Now playing in theaters nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this week, J. Edgar, which we reviewed. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Army Hammer, and Naomi Watts. It's directed by Clint Eastwood. Jack and Jill with the man formerly known as promising comedy up-and-comer Adam Sandler and the Immortals with that guy who's apparently playing Superman and Mickey Rourke also stars in that. I saw it last night. I'm sure you did. How was it? It's pretty tight. <laughs> I, th- this is another one of those movies where like <laughs> critical faculties go out the window oh. and you're just like, people getting beheaded, oh, bright colors, 3D. Oh, ah! So you saw it in 3D? Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, is it a good 3D example? Or? I thought so. Well, I thought so. I wish that, you know, with movies like The Immortals, I wish that the marketing departments would have a good sense of humor and would put blurbs on the screen that say, pretty tight, <laughs> Corey Kraft, or whichever critic. It, it, it really does push the boundaries of the maximum amount of ownage allowed in a movie. Uh, <laughs> that it, too. It's, it's, pushing, it's pushing two hours, and it's pretty much nonstop. That's a great blurb, too. Fools. That should be, it should, you know, when they release the Blu-ray, it should be maximum ownage edition, you know? <laughs> we'll see. They might as well. They might as well, because it's a totally <laughs> ridiculous movie. It's also terrific looking, though. Tarsum is a, is a really promising visual stylist, and knows how to depict fools getting owned so there's right. that to be said for it red box but, it is yep you can email any of your feedback to aspect radio show at gmail.com find us on twitter.com slash aspect radio or facebook.com slash aspect radio you can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. we'll also post the podcast on twitter and facebook and check us out on ale.com and tusk205.com we are now on iTunes, so hop over there and search for us or find the link on our blog. And you can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine or on Tusk205.com every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News. And be sure to visit our friend Matt's website, FilmNerds.com, where you'll find a brand new episode of Alabama's other movie podcast, Cinematrimony, hosted by Matt and his wife, Francesca. And they've got a spoiler-heavy review of the film we just discussed, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. So definitely check it out if you've seen that movie only. And thanks, as always, to our producer, our boy, Andrew Richardson, for his skills and patience with us. And until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, she's, she's just a picture Lives, lives on my wall Well, she's, she's just a picture And the reason, reason, reason it is so small Smile so inviting body so tall well she's she's just a picture just a picture that's all